Welcome to Brain Ignition Radio. Here I share with you all of the knowledge and resources I've gained as it relates to nutrition, exercise, and brain health. By sharing these interesting case studies, in-depth discussions, and research, I hope that we can learn together and improve our current health and the health of future generations. I'm your host, Chet Binning, and I thank you for tuning in. Benson and I are back with part two of our metabolic health series. Today, we're going to discuss how metabolic illness can disrupt our hunger signals and appetite. We'll also talk about how things like sleep loss and inflammation disrupts our appetite, as Benson snores in the background. And we're going to dig into some of these signals again that we've previously discussed signals like leptin and ghrelin, and talk about how these are impaired in metabolic illness and obesity, and what we can actually do about this. <laughs> there he goes. So this is part two. Part one, we discussed skinny fat and what you might call healthy fat. So these are individuals who appear on the outside skinny, but have a large amount of body fat, specifically visceral adipose tissue. Now this is the fat that develops around our organs. This is a really bad thing because this impairs functioning of really the rest of our body and brain. So in fact, this visceral adipose tissue, which is the fat around our organs, remember that it itself is its own organ. And that means that it can release different signals and communicate with other parts of the body. And this is kind of in a nutshell why this is so problematic. Not necessarily that it does communicate with the rest of the body because our fat tissue does that in general. That's not a bad thing per se, but it's the way that it communicates with the rest of the body. I mean, you can kind of think of visceral adipose tissue as like, the Sauron or something like that. If you're into Lord of the Rings, think of it as the bad guy, the Darth Vader, however you want to look at it. Not good to the rest of our body, put it that way. Now, if we kind of look at the opposite, which is these people who appear fat from the outside, but are actually metabolically healthy, if you test their blood and kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive, with these individuals, it turns out that the reason they are metabolically healthy despite being overweight is because they have minimal visceral adipose tissue and instead most of their fat is what's known as subcutaneous, which is just the fat that's right below our skin. Now, if you're trying to kind of imagine these people, think about the sumo wrestler or maybe the NFL lineman. So People who are obviously, you know, overweight, they have excess amounts of fat, but usually it's because of their enormous activity level that they're able to maintain that healthy metabolic profile. Now, those people perhaps have an elevated risk in the future to become metabolically ill, specifically if they stop exercising at the level that they do. However, at that point in time, when we're comparing those two individuals side by side, that individual that appears skinny is actually 
less healthy than the individual who is overweight. So I just think this is such a crazy concept, but also so interesting. In future episodes, we'll maybe dive more into kind of how and why that might develop. Um, I, we did briefly discuss this last time, but anyways, that's the key Spark Notes edition review. And today we're going to now discuss how being in some of these categories, so skinny fat or maybe healthy fat, or in general, being metabolically unwell, how this actually disrupts hunger signals. Because hunger and appetite is, it's a funny thing. It's something that we all feel on a daily basis. We really don't think about it at all. Maybe we think about it during times when we wonder what the hell is going on. Like, why am I so damn hungry? Why am I craving this food? Um, you know, why am I not hungry? And so on and so forth. But there's a couple different systems within the body that have a, a big impact on this. So one of those would be different signals, right? Hormones, peptides, neurological signals. Some of these signals are released from our gut, maybe in response to incoming foods, and then eventually travel to the brain. And then the brain tells us that we are either hungry or full. Other signals may actually come from our fat tissue and then have a similar path. They come from our fat tissue, eventually get to the brain, and then either tell us hungry or full. And as we'll talk about today, having an abundance of body fat, specifically visceral body fat, can really impair how some of these signals work and how they're interpreted in the brain. So those would be your, I guess you could call them the biological signals of hunger. And so, of course, oh, Benson's bailing. I, he's had enough of this episode, or maybe he's hungry. So these are what we could call the biological signals. And, of course, we won't dig into it in a, too much detail today, but depending on the size of the meal, the type of the meal, how much protein, carbohydrate, and fat, and different micronutrients in there, that's all going to affect these signals for sure, right? Um, we're not going to spend too much time on this though, because we already did that in the fat loss series. So you can check that out if you're interested, but I mean, just one super simple example, guys, as I've said before, protein is the strongest appetite suppressant, and it has to do with how it affects these different signals that then go to the brain and tell us that we are full and satiated. And I think this is something most of us have felt before. I mean, how do you feel after eating if you have that is and the enormous steak, whether it's at the keg or you made it yourself, um, you, I mean, whatever, you name it, you're, you're pretty, pretty damn full after that, pretty satisfied. You, you can't eat much more after that. Whereas other foods, something like desserts or candies, we know that it seems like you can never get enough of those, right? You can kind of just keep going. And again, this has to do with how it affects these hunger signals. But any whom, those would be the biological signals. So that's kind of category one. Category two would be our environment. 
or what you could call sensory. So this would be things like taste or smell or really what we see too. And this could be a, you know, a thousand different things too. This could be, uh, could be specific colors. So what color a package is, or even what color a restaurant is, because we know that different colors have a different effect on our brain. Some could potentially elevate appetite. I'm definitely not up to date on the psychology of colors. I don't remember how it's different colors really affect us. Obviously, we all remember the red example, like red typically is associated with, you know, aggression and things like this. But anyways, this has a big influence or just the appearance of things like packages and labels and so on, because this is after all why food companies will spend millions of dollars on that right there, packaging and how they present foods. Marketing, look at commercials and infomercials. All these are designed for a specific reason. They design these commercials in a way that take advantage of our senses in a certain way that make you hungry, make you wanna crave that food, make you want more. And again, that too, not up to date on that. I can't give you specific examples. I just know the general concept here and you probably know that too, right? You see certain commercials and your mouth starts to water and then you rush out the door and go to the nearest quickie mart and get that shake. And then we have cognitive. So you could call this category three. This would be habits. It could be knowledge you've learned about specific foods or ways of eating. Hopefully I'm delivering you some good knowledge from a nutrition standpoint that supports your you know, cognitive impact of food. So what I mean is, that's really ambiguous, but what I mean by that is, if you know a little bit more about a certain food, I mean, let's just say, I don't know, say salmon, for example. If you all of a sudden learn that, oh, salmon's really good for me, it's got a lot of omega-3, I know that that's good for my brain, so I need to eat more of it. If you know that, a lot of the times you're going to be more likely to eat that food and probably be more likely to enjoy that food. Now, that's not true for everyone. Definitely not. There's a lot of people out there who, you know, really have an aversion for certain foods, especially seafood. Benson absolutely loves his seafood. I could open up like a can of mackerel in, you know, across the house, probably even inside when he's outside. And he's going to come bolting and sit right at my foot and want a little bite of that. But the cognitive is important because it's basically like your beliefs, um, your knowledge, and that's going to have an impact too on hunger and appetite and some of these things. Because if we use that salmon example again, if you really dislike it, then you're probably not going to feel hungry when you see the fish, as opposed to someone who really likes it, you're gonna be hungry when you see it. So I hope that kind of makes sense. That's just one little example, but now you can imagine how that can really apply to you know diet and food in general. And this could also be like habits, how you were brought up and so on and so forth. So those are kind of your three categories. But now I really wanna dig into mostly the biology 
because I see this as something we can actually take advantage of. This is perhaps another thing that we think is just automatic and we have no influence over, but that's definitely not the case. So let's start with sleep loss, shall we? I don't know if you guys are aware of this. We haven't really talked about it on the show anyways, but sleep loss like just kind of really fucks up with our appetite. So one thing in particular is sleep loss in general is going to elevate our fasting blood sugar. And actually, if you look at someone's blood, so if you were to take someone's blood the morning after sleep loss, analyze it, that day, let's say they stayed up all night. If you didn't know that person, if you didn't know their health, all you knew was how their blood looked. So let's say you're looking at maybe some blood sugar, maybe fasting insulin. You would think they have type two diabetes and then they could get a regular night's sleep. You test it again and they might look completely healthy. So that's really the power of sleep. It, it really is that impactful. We know that one night, even just one night, unfortunately, of sleep deprivation can really mess with our blood sugar specifically and just our hunger in general. But so just look at that one example. You're going to have higher fasting blood sugar the next day, probably higher fasting insulin as well. And in addition to that, that's going to have an effect on hunger, right? But I, I want to mention that more so just to show that if you do that constantly all the time, that's that's not good, right? It's not going to be good for our overall health. It's not going to be good for metabolic health. But I want to instead focus on what sleep loss does to our hunger. You've probably maybe felt this before too, right? Um, I think a lot of us, we have a crappy night's sleep, maybe several in a row. We tend to get a little hungrier, I think, right? Maybe we get some cravings, specifically cravings for maybe some high carbohydrate foods. And this is actually what the research shows. And it probably has to do with that perhaps elevated blood sugar and insulin that we have the next day from sleep loss. So sleep is critical. Now, the other part to this is that we actually also tend to eat more when we're sleep deprived and the hunger hormones, if we test these after sleep loss, they kind of fit this story. So what I mean is we have higher appetite, we tend to eat more. And sure enough, it turns out that sleep loss will actually increase the next day levels of ghrelin. So let's review what ghrelin is quickly, shall we? So ghrelin, this is one of those signals that travels from gut to brain. Now ghrelin, maybe if you want to remember this, think of it as like growling, growling, your stomach is growling. So ghrelin makes you hungry, it increases appetite. And what this says is that after sleep loss, ghrelin is elevated. So you're going to feel hungry. So I mean, it's not just in your head after all, right? It's biology. It's your body telling you that you are more hungry. So maybe that's a good thing to be aware of, right? When you feel that way, know that that is normal. Now to kind of make matters worse is that the effects of leptin, which actually suppress our appetite. So leptin is released 
and you don't want to eat any more food. Well, the effects of this are actually suppressed when we lose out on sleep. So this is like the perfect storm for us to eat more when we lose out on sleep. And sure enough, as I already mentioned, there's lots of research showing that on average, people do eat more, they consume more calories on these days. So one counter argument to this might just be that, well, you know, people were awake longer, so perhaps they're burning more calories. That's a good counter argument, but the extra calories that one would burn from being awake does not account for the extra calories. So typically, based on the research on average, people consume about 300 to 400 extra calories when they lose out on sleep. Of course, that's going to vary. And if you're staying up, you know, maybe you burn like an extra 100 calories. So it doesn't add up. So that's sleep loss. Sleep, really important. Do what you can. I know it's not always possible to get um, a large amount, but I think, excuse me, you can do other things to at least ensure the quality. That's avoiding lights and screens before bed. Maybe read, maybe wear blue light blocking glasses. That's getting the sun exposure around sunrise or shortly after and sunset. It's getting some type of activity in during the day and it's avoiding food before bed. By the way, that was when we see those changes to ghrelin and leptin, I should clarify that that's not necessarily just from one night of sleep loss. We do see the disrupted blood sugar the next day from just one night. That is the case, but for ghrelin and leptin, it might take up to a week of low sleep around about four hours per night. Next is inflammation. So inflammation actually also impairs satiety signaling. Inflammation is involved in everything, right? But the reason this one is interesting is because if we look at Let's look at obesity. So someone who is overweight and metabolically unwell, we know that that is going to impair with hunger signals. This is something we've also discussed before where these individuals develop what's called leptin resistance. So this is when the signal of leptin, it's just not working as well as it should be. So leptin remember tells us to stop eating. If we develop a resistance to that, it's not working very well. So it's like the store is closed. Someone's trying to get into the store, but they can't get in, it, it's closed. So this is kind of leptin and how it functions in our brain telling us to stop eating. It's just not doing its job. And so people continually eat and overeat and it's kind of this vicious cycle. So the reason this is interesting is because inflammation, I mentioned it disrupts these hunger signals like ghrelin and leptin, but it turns out that this actually happens before the weight gain, before weight gain. So that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because if we gain a bunch of weight, then we might guess, okay, well, yeah, I gained a bunch of extra body fat and that created the inflammation and then that created the problem. But these studies that are for now anyways, just in rodents from what I've seen, shows that before that weight gain, 
there's an increase in inflammation, and then this can impair the hunger signals. So that's pretty cool. Um, that means that as much as possible, we should be trying to avoid those classic pro-inflammatory foods. And this is why, in my opinion, processed foods are really, I mean, they're the culprit as far as I'm concerned with modern day metabolic illness. I think this is the biggest problem. It's funny, right? I mean, there's all these debates now about certain diets, you know, keto, carnivore, vegan, vegetarian, paleo, and they go back and forth and back and forth debating, you know, mine's better, yours sucks, I'm the best, you're the worst, I'm first, you're last. And at the end of the day, any diet that is either free or has as little as possible processed foods and achieves things like sufficient protein, sufficient healthy fats, but whole foods is the key, no processed foods. I mean, that's going to be better than any other diet that prioritizes the processed foods. And I think it has to do with the effect of processed foods on inflammation. Uh, we know that a lot of these are pro-inflammatory. The food industry will, you know, fight to the death to argue against this for as long as they possibly can. And they're still continuing to do that, um, unfortunately, but they have the money to back them. But anyways, processed foods is, is the key here. These inflame the gut. The gut leads to inflammation through the rest of the body. Processed foods are deficient in micronutrients. And so without sufficient micronutrients, this also impairs metabolic health and hunger and satiety. And the list goes on and on. So whole foods is the key. And then from there, you can kind of start to optimize your diet. But that's the, I think the key takeaway here from that point about inflammation is that processed foods are the enemy here. I will just note one more thing about the inflammation and how it affects hunger. It is interesting that kind of the extreme example the extreme example of having high levels of inflammation happening all at one time. Well, that would be something like sepsis, right? So sepsis is this kind of acute response where we have massive amounts of inflammation through the whole body organs start to shut down in this scenario that inflammation actually has an anorexic effect in the, uh, excuse me, anorexic effect in the brain and actually really blunts appetite and, and we lose our appetite. Whereas chronic inflammation, so kind of that continuous low grade inflammation, which we develop from being sedentary, from not sleeping and eating crappy foods. Well, that has the opposite effect. And this is just another example, you know, of how the dose is in the poison or the poison is in the dose. I don't know how that goes, but how it, it really depends on the amount. And that goes for absolutely everything in, in biology. As I've said before, um, you know, water, vegetables, exercise, you name it, you can have too much of all of those. All of those could technically kill you. So what is next? Some of these other satiety signals 
are, are really strongly impacted by our metabolic health. And that would include the significant weight gain and fat gain and specifically the gain of visceral adipose tissue. So basically these scenarios or conditions that we talked about last time. So how does this affect our hunger and appetite? That is the next question. Well, for this, we should just kind of go down the list of some of these different signals. So maybe you remember one called CCK. Now, all you really need to know about this is that CCK is released from our gut and is another signal that goes to our brain and ultimately tells us to stop eating. Now, this one, perhaps surprisingly, it doesn't actually seem to be affected by at least obesity, but it seems like at least for now, metabolic illness in general, it doesn't seem like it affects this. So when I look at this, I kind of think, okay, well, I think this is something that someone who is maybe they're overweight or maybe they're skinny fat and they're really trying to improve their health. I think people need to take advantage of this CCK because it seems to still be working. So if you or someone you know is someone who just can't control their appetite, well, they need to get foods and nutrients in that elevate CCK to tell them to stop eating. And what is that? Well, we've covered these before. It's glutamine and omega-3 fatty acids. Those are the two big ones. So it's almost like it's almost like your body is eating until you consume enough glutamine and omega-3 fatty acids. So glutamine, check that one out. If you guys want um, some tips on like dosing and that kind of thing, feel free to just shoot me a message. You can check out examine.com. But glutamine, even like a tablespoon of glutamine is sometimes enough to reduce hunger and especially reduce cravings, sugar cravings. Glutamine is incredible for that. So glutamine is key here. As a bonus, glutamine also repairs the lining of our gut. So you can kind of maybe kill two birds with one stone with glutamine. If we have some type of leaky gut, which we could develop from all the things I mentioned earlier, poor sleep, too much stress, processed foods. Well, to repair that, we also need glutamine. And then omega-3 fatty acids, if you're not consuming those in your diet, might be a good thing to supplement. So that one's interesting. I think take advantage of CCK. Now everyone can do this, but I think those people especially. What about GLP-1? So this is just another one of these peptides that are released from our gut after a meal and then tell us to stop eating. Now this one too does not seem to be impaired if we are overweight or maybe skinny fat or have metabolic illness. So this is another one. Let's take advantage of this. Now the research I maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem to be too clear on what elevates this the most. From what I've seen, it just seems that elevating um, blood sugar after a meal, elevating insulin after a meal to a certain degree, which should, I mean, kind of happen automatically. Now that's going to vary depending on the meal composition, but that seems to be the bigness, biggest signal for this. 
Now that response is kind of impaired if we are overweight or have metabolic illness, as in our blood sugar after a meal or our insulin after a meal. So maybe you could argue that, you know, then GLP one maybe isn't working as well as it could. But anyways, it's kind of like an unnecessary debate. I think for this one, my opinion, I think just stick to the basics. So, and that's what we just said. It's glutamine, it's made through fatty acids. It's getting enough protein in is, is a big one here. We also have PYY, another one that fits into this category from the gut after a meal tells us to stop eating. And this one actually is lower in individuals with metabolic illness, at least based on the uh, kind of the animal models. There's, there hasn't been much done yet in humans that I could find. However, there does seem to be some other um, issues with this one here. Sorry, guys, I got a little bit distracted there by the delivery guy, so I kind of trailed off, but PYY. So yeah, it does seem to be impaired in those individuals who have metabolic illness. However, we know that PYY, one of the, uh, the biggest or the, the strongest, the strongest stimulators of PYY, which is going to basically tell us to stop eating is again, protein. So this is, this is just one of the reasons, one of the signals too that makes protein the most satiating. And so again, when I look at this one, I think to myself, if someone is struggling with hunger, they're having difficulty losing weight and specifically find themselves always overeating. Maybe these hunger signals aren't working so well. Look at your protein. And it's really just, it's a, it's a basic thing I think that we should all do anyways, but this is just maybe more rationale to do so. It is um, maybe like, it's a little bit disheartening, but also interesting that we do actually see reduced levels of PYY released after when we have more body fat. So if we put that another way, the more body fat we carry, the less circulating PYY we find after a meal. And so this just kind of, it's another example of how like our metabolism almost becomes like a little bit broken, right? When we gain a bunch of extra fat and it can disrupt some of these signals. Now we can do things to address that. We're going to get into those very soon, but this is just a, a, a really specific example of what's actually going on that can mess with our hunger. We kind of maybe perhaps judge people and um, think that it's all just, you know, their personal choice and their habits. But in reality, there's some really powerful biological and neurological signals at play here that make it really challenging for a lot of people. And so this is to give those individuals the resources because um, they're not, they're not out there. The resources aren't easy to find. Instead, what we're given is Hey, here's a fast food restaurant and a variety store on every single street corner, which is just going to disturb these signals even more. Now, ghrelin, 
ghrelin is the one produced by the gut, tells us to be hungry. This one does also seem to be impaired when we have extra body fat, when we are obese, when we have metabolic illness. This we've already discussed a little bit. And then leptin too, as we've already mentioned, this one certainly does get dysregulated as well. And leptin is the one that is actually made from our fat tissue and tells us to stop eating. And so you would think the more fat we have, the more influence we have to stop eating. But as I said, we develop a resistance. So actually leptin for whatever reason, it seems like it just doesn't get into the brain anymore. So there's like a disconnect in that signal. There's a disconnect from the signal that's released from our fat to tell us to stop eating and actually getting into the brain and delivering that message. So it's, it's really like the, it's like the mailman who kind of gets lost or just, you know, quits on the job and the people that he was delivering mail to just don't get the mail, man. What an analogy. And then last thing, we do see some changes to uh, some reward mechanisms. So they'll do some interesting studies where they, they'll take lean individuals and obese individuals. They'll look at some brain imaging. So basically they can look at blood flow to specific regions of the brain. And then they'll, they'll do different things while they look at these brain regions. Classic example they might do is present them with a stereotypically rewarding food or meal. So it might be like a high sugar, high carbohydrate meal, or they might just give them a, a meal in general, or they might even just show them pictures of it. But what they're trying to figure out is if lean individuals versus obese individuals actually have a different response in their brain in response to these, these different foods or foods in general. And actually they find that individuals who are obese, they seem to have a more, a stronger response actually in areas of the brain that are really concentrated with dopamine. So dopamine is the neurotransmitter that is responsible for addiction and reward. When you do something that is either one of those things, addicting or rewarding, we get a big release of dopamine that makes us want to do it again and do it over and over again. If you're addicted to gambling, you get a huge dopamine surge when you pull that lever on the slot machine. I guess maybe they're, they don't use levers too often anymore, right? But it's more so buttons. You get a huge dopamine surge when you hit that button and that's what makes people wrap their credit card around their waist so that they can just swipe, hit, swipe, hit the button because they get that big dopamine release. So the point here is that individuals who have some metabolic illness or who are overweight or perhaps skinny fat, I, I keep saying perhaps skinny fat because there's not much research on these individuals because it's kind of a new concept that individuals who are skinny fat are like unhealthy, not a lot of research on that. So I say, perhaps my, my guess is that they would also see some disturbances here because of that uh, visceral adipose tissue. But anyways, 
they get a stronger surge of dopamine in response to these foods, which is um, another motivator for them to eat more and perhaps eat more of the wrong foods. So I, you know, I don't really have a good exam uh, answer to be honest about what we can do to improve that, that dopamine response. If I was to kind of, you know, think out loud now and come up with something, I would say like try and adopt good eating habits as much as possible. So something like eating in front of the TV that could create perhaps like a hyper dopamine response because you're finding that show or movie you're watching really rewarding. And then you're also getting reward from that food you're eating. So this can create kind of this hyper response, which you then are kind of continually seeking, right? It, 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 it really just works the same as drugs. You're always seeking for that and looking for that same high because it gave you such a massive dopamine response in the first place. So I think just try and develop good eating habits as much as possible and really try and limit sugar as best as possible too. Again, I think you're probably saying, well, like, yeah, no shit, Chet, that's kind of common sense. But, you know, I, I think often we don't know why that is. We're told, hey, you should limit your sugar. It's not good for you. And you go, well, sweet answer. Like, why though? Why should I? It tastes awesome. I want more, so I'm going to have more. Well, here's a good rationale. It's hijacking the neurological signals in your brain. So, hey, good idea to try and limit it, especially for individuals who are in this position. Now let's get to some other practical tools that are supported by science now, shall we? So the first two, two trace minerals that maybe you've never heard of, chromium and vanadium. So chromium and vanadium, these are trace minerals which are incredibly important for blood sugar and insulin sensitivity, two things that are critical for metabolic health. And if we can improve metabolic health, well, then that's going to improve all these other things we're talking about, such as hunger, such as cravings. Now, the studies on chromium and vanadium are quite interesting. They find that especially in individuals who have metabolic illness, specifically those with type 2 diabetes, they can experience some pretty big improvements when they begin to supplement these. They see improvements to blood sugar. They might see improvements to HbA1c, which is a long-term snapshot of the blood sugar. And they see improvements to insulin sensitivity in general. They also see, this is with vanadium now specifically, they see increases in glycogen resynthesis. So that's actually a good thing too. That means the ability to store carbohydrates is improved. Now this might seem counterintuitive, but that's actually impaired in individuals with obesity. And they do in some instances find that supplementing chromium, I'm not sure about vanadium, I didn't find this, but I know that with chromium, if it is deficient, they do find that it induces fat loss in many individuals when it is deficient. That's pretty cool because there's not many things out there that can actually do that without offering like a stimulatory effect. And this is just a trace mineral. So chromium, vanadium, you'll see these in high quality blood sugar support formulas. 
you guys know I'm biased towards ATP labs. I'm biased towards them for good reason. But anyways, you can find chromium and vanadium in glucocontrol and adipose slim. And that would be a really good one-two punch to improve metabolic health, specifically for those people who really need to improve this. I'm not sure where else to get these. Uh, I was meaning to check that and I, I just totally didn't. Um, so this is something for me to look into. Where else can we get these trace minerals? But yes, you can supplement these. Next up is curcumin. Curcumin is really impressive. This might be perhaps, you know, number one or up there on the list anyways of effective supplements for, for supporting everything we're talking about today. So supplemental curcumin, which if you haven't heard of, this is one of the active ingredients in turmeric, which is a like an orange root. I think it's most popular in Indian cultures, if I'm not mistaken. But curcumin is a known anti-inflammatory. It's, it's very well known for that. I mean, they'll test this in individuals with rheumatoid arthritis and see some dramatic improvements, even when they compare it to leading pharmaceutical options. And we know that curcumin is a natural agent. So we see reductions in inflammation, reductions in blood sugar and reductions in HSCRP. So that's another marker of inflammation. So that's the first benefit, right? If we can improve inflammation, maybe we can improve some of these hunger signals because as we discussed at the beginning, inflammation is one of the things that messes with these signals. This was pretty shocking to me. Um, maybe this is a little out of context, but an increase in nitric oxide by 40%. I did not know this. Um, I'm going to have to look into this again, but if that's the case, that is enormous and unbelievable. So nitric oxide, which is important for blood flow. But again, going to be really important for individuals who have metabolic illness because they might have some issues with blood flow. We know that this is an issue with individuals with type 2 diabetes. They have poor circulation, so there's another benefit. Now, this is the key here. Curcumin has been shown to deliver a small reduction in leptin in those with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So perhaps counterintuitive again, right? Because leptin is what's going to tell us to stop eating. So why would we want a little bit of a re reduction? But counterintuitive because individuals who are overweight and obese tend to have, it's the resistance, right? They have resistance to leptin. It's not necessarily an issue with the levels. So this could perhaps kind of optimize the response to leptin. So it's, it's, not necessarily the number of people delivering the mail, delivering that message of leptin. It's more so the quality of the employee. So improving the employees that we do have, maybe delivering a better message. Just another, you know, another really interesting possible benefit here. But I think last, certainly not least, in fact, probably the, the, the key here, or one of the biggest benefits is that Curcumin can actually reduce the amount of inflammation we get in our fat tissue. And so that is going to be a, a 
big bonus as well. So curcumin has a lot of potential benefits here. And again, something I see that has a ton of potential specifically for those individuals who have some extra weight, they have some metabolic issues, maybe they have some insulin resistance, struggle with hunger, and this is something that they can benefit from. We didn't talk too much today about artificial sweeteners, but there is some preliminary data on these showing that it could perhaps mess with hunger and cravings. Not conclusive. However, I think it is pretty conclusive that it does impair gut health if used consistently over a long period of time. So I don't really see how this is, um, you know, supportive of our overall health goals, especially if hunger is something that we want to improve. The question often comes up, you know, is an artificial flavor better than the added sugar? So in context, you know, is a Diet Coke better than a Coca-Cola? I think if I had to pick, I would probably say yes, but it's, it's like picking, like, it's kind of like picking, um, you know, a political party to vote for, especially nowadays in Canada, you're picking between crap and shit. There's, there's not much, um, upside to either one, but if you had to pick one, you know, you got to settle on one then you're going to pick one. And so if I had to, it would maybe be sweeteners, but I, you know, I got to tell you, like I've, I've worked with a couple people in the past couple of years who they have a legit addiction to diet Coke and diet Coke is the most common one. It, it might happen with other ones with artificial flavors. I'm not really sure, but there's something there that we haven't yet discovered. Um, as in it, it, it does something to our hunger and our cravings and our brain that we don't yet fully understand. I'm, I'm confident of this. I believe we're going to uncover this. There's some early studies, which kind of have hinted at this where they'll, they'll kind of really isolate brain cells, put them into a Petri dish and then like test these sweeteners. Now we can't write home about that. Cause like I said, it is really early research, but you know, I just, I just think something's there. And if you think about it, um, you know, it just can't be good consuming copious amounts of like aspartame and these things. But like I said, we know they're not good for the gut and anything that's not good for the gut is not going to be good for anything except feeling like crap. Now, what about exercise? We haven't really discussed much about exercise on this episode, which is kind of sad. But the, uh, the effect of exercise on hunger might be might be surprising to you. Maybe not the end effect, but how, how it delivers the effect, I think will be shocking to you. So exercise has for a long time been known to have a anorexic effect, which means that it can blunt appetite. So there's actually a term for this. It's known as exercise induced anorexia, which just means that exercise blunts our appetite. However, this is short term. It's, it's only short term. And then the appetite returns as I'm sure many of you guys know and have experienced. I know I have is that you, you're probably not too hungry immediately thereafter some sessions for sure. Excuse me. I tend to find that, you know, after some weightlifting, um, 
maybe like some slower conditioning stuff. I'm, I'm definitely pretty hungry. I'm ready to, you know, mow down on something, but then there's some certain sessions that are usually high intensity, maybe a little bit longer. Those ones really seem to blunt the appetite and I don't even want to look at food usually for like 30 to 60 minutes after the workout. So this would be that exercise induced anorexia. But like I said, it returns to baseline shortly after. So I don't know. Um, I don't think we can necessarily say definitively if exercise is going to have a positive effect on appetite. However, I don't think it really matters. Like when we look at all the other benefits of exercise and what it does to blood sugar and insulin and body composition and brain health and on and on and on there shouldn't be a debate about whether or not it can help this situation indirectly. So there's that. However, there is something else and it actually has to do with your body temperature. So believe it or not, a elevated body temperature, which we get from exercise turns out to actually be a powerful appetite suppressant. So there's this pretty cool study. This one was done in rodents, but this is what they did. They put rodents through an exercise test. I've mentioned this before, but you can put mice on a mouse treadmill. They will run, they will exercise, and you can measure exercise that way. There's some other ways, but this is one of the methods. So they did this, they put them through an exercise test, and then the goal was to get the body temperature to a certain level. So they elevated the body temperature with exercise and then they measured appetite. And they found that the rodents exercising, they had approximately 50% less food after the treadmill session than the other individuals who were not exercising. So how did they know it was from temperature? Well, they basically knocked out some proteins that are important for body temperature regulation and then this effect was obliterated so if we put that another way this is a it's a you know common technique in research is that you find an effect so here they found that exercise blocked hunger then they wanted to find out exactly okay how did this actually happen? Like what in the body or what in the brain was actually responsible for this? And what you can do is you can actually like basically take out a certain, a, basically a certain piece of the puzzle. You take an educated guess at what piece of the puzzle is responsible for this. You take that out or you can block it with a drug or there's some other methods. And then you see if that exercise effect on appetite is still there. If it goes away, well, then you can say, oh shit, that piece of the puzzle that we took out is important for this. And then you kind of dig a little deeper, repeat that and so on. So this is how we find out that, for instance, you know, in this example, it's a certain receptor that's important for body temperature is, is responsible here. But just a little bit of background there, guys. But anyways, I think we could take advantage of this too, probably. Maybe you have a, uh, a certain scenario where you tend to overeat and eat crap food. Um, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's the drive home, say. 
So maybe before that drive home, you do a little bit of exercise or something to really jack up your body temperature so that when you pass that weak point on the way home, you don't have the appetite for it. You know, I don't know. There's probably a lot of different ways to apply this. I think that's just one example. But I think we could maybe take advantage of this short-term appetite suppressing effect. But I thought that was really interesting how it's not necessarily the exercise per se. It's actually the body temperature because body temperature is really important for our feeding behavior and our appetite. So that's uh, most everything that I wanted to cover for today, guys. I know it's getting near dinner time for Benson, so he's getting hungry. So about time we wrap this up. We talked about glutamine, we talked about curcumin, chromium, vanadium. I did want to close today with a brief overview of a recent study that came out. It looked at low carbohydrate diets versus higher carbohydrate diets. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's all these debates going back and forth, which diet's better. So step one, like I said, I think get rid of the processed foods and then maybe we can begin to optimize things a little bit more. And maybe some diets make it easier to remove processed foods, right? But I just wanted to briefly bring this one up because basically what they did was they gave groups of people either a low carbohydrate diet or a high carbohydrate diet, but they gave them the exact same protein and the exact same calories. So that is super important that they did that, that they gave them the same protein and the same total energy. And then they basically just flipped the total fat for the total carbohydrates. So keep an eye out for that when you see stuff on social media and maybe even in the news. If calories are not the same between the two diets, it's, it's kind of, it's not useless, but you can't say that one diet was better or worse for metabolic health or weight loss at all. So calories should be matched. Protein should be matched too, if the question is about carbs and fats. But anyways, this was an interesting study because they did, they looked at the low carb versus the high carb. The low carb group was eating about 45 grams per day of carbohydrates. That might be maybe, um, you know, maybe an apple with some berries. And then the high carb group was eating 420 grams of carbohydrates, which is a huge number. That would be, you know, like several cups of white rice, a couple pieces of fruit, maybe some yogurt, probably some oatmeal. It's a, it's a pretty large amount. But remember, calories were identical. And as the, the debate goes, if calories are equal, well, then it doesn't really matter. But what this study found was that even without weight loss, so no difference in weight loss, meaning that the high carb and low carb groups stayed the same weight. The low carb diet was actually better for metabolic health, which is what we've been talking about. So markers of blood sugar and insulin sensitivity and all of these other ones. So that was a really interesting one. I'm not saying that carbohydrates are bad, definitely not. But I do think that a lot of people could benefit from at least for a short term, short period of time, adopting a low carbohydrate diet to kind of retrain the system because it gets a little bit broken at times. 
and it seems like high carbohydrates, which are super easy to get on every street corner and we do often overconsume, seems like those don't fix the system, whereas removing them may be able to do that. So that's it for today. Next up next week, I'm really excited for this one because we're going to talk about how all of this affects brain function and specifically depression. So we're going to dig into this one even more than we did last time, guys. But that's it. Let me know if you have any questions. Um, I'd really appreciate this if you... Sorry, I'd really appreciate it. Um, I start kind of mixing my words towards the end of these. If you would share this with any friends or family members, leave us a review if you enjoyed it or if you didn't, that's fine too. Um, but maybe just send me a message if you didn't like it so that we can still keep a good review on the charts. So share it with others. Let me know if you have any questions. Um, suggestions for future podcasts but otherwise i thank you guys for tuning in i hope you dug this episode too and i hope you're getting some good content and information from it have a good week